Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 178. My guest today is Jan Tallinn. And there are so many things about him that ought to be the first words out of my mouth when describing him, since my mouth is linear, though, in no particular order. Jan was one of the founding developers of Skype and the file-sharing application Kazaa, making him a billionaire, which he has leveraged to co-found and fund key institutions that address existential risk. In other words, threat to the existence of the human race. Those are the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, or CESAR, in Cambridge, England, and the Future of Life Institute, FLI, in the other Cambridge, in Massachusetts. Jan is also a member of the board of sponsors of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the people who maintain the doomsday clock, which is their way of telling us how high the risk of nuclear war is. And it is currently, let me see, set to 90 seconds to midnight, the closest to global catastrophe it has ever been. Speaking of which, one of the people we mention is Eliezer Yudkowsky, an AI researcher who's risen to greater prominence lately because of his quite dire assessment of the existential risk we're facing. I'm not going to expand upon everything he's saying right now because it would drown out the conversation you're about to hear. That's for another time, but you should definitely be paying attention to what he's saying. Eliezer is founder of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, MIRI, another organization focused on existential risks, in this case exclusively from AI, and Jan also donated to MIRI. So you get the thread here that Jan is someone who's practiced putting his money where his mouth is when it comes to doing something about risks from AI, and on a scale that makes an enormous difference. You'll hear a reference to two open letters that were delivered from the AI community to the world this year. One from FLI on March 22nd, co-signed by Jan, calling for a six-month pause in the training of large language models. The other, released by the Center for AI Safety on May 30th, consisted of one sentence, which said, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. And it was signed by Jan along with many other AI luminaries. These letters got a great deal of press and obviously generated some controversy. A couple of other terms we dropped that I should explain in advance. It's really quite an information-dense interview. This is what it's like when two developers go at it. Turns out that's the role we both identify with the most. The first is philosopher Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, which made a big impact on some key people when it landed in 2014, exploring what could happen if and when we had raised a machine to be superintelligent. Essential reading. Second is the precautionary principle, which basically says that when the potential consequences of some action are catastrophic, 
we ought to limit the application of that action, even if the chances of those consequences are very small. This does, however, mean that you know that the chances are not zero, and that has implications you'll hear me refer to. Without further ado, joining us from Estonia, here is Jan Tallinn. Jan Tallinn, it's an extreme pleasure to welcome you to the show. You have done more than probably anyone else, and certainly with less public attention than anyone making a commensurate contribution to the mitigation of existential risk. I feel like I want to say you speak softly and carry a big carrot. <laughs> How did you make this transition from being a developer, a mindset I certainly understand, to, if I could use the term existential risk philanthropist? What was that journey? What realizations prompted that? First of all, I don't think I have made the transition because I still develop and I write code like every week, pretty much. It's like one of the things that I just love to do. But the main thing that caught my attention in, I think in 2008, were Eliezer Yudkowsky's writings on, back then it was a blog called Overcoming Bias. Now that he has transitioned over his writings to Less Wrong, and they're known as Less Wrong Sequences. So yeah, he was just making this crazy sounding case that AI default outcome is not going to be good for us. And we need to actually put in work, invest work in order to ensure good outcomes. That caught my attention and went from there. Well, since you've already gone to Eliezer, I feel I would need to bring up the elephant in the room, which is what he's saying right now, which is pretty absolute in terms of where we're going. The statements he's made about that are essentially, it's over there's nothing we can do, it's too late. I don't think I'm representing him unfairly there, although correct me if you think so. Where do you stand with respect to that level of prognostication? I mean, first of all, I don't think Eliezer says that it's completely over, <laughs> but yes, it's like he is very, very pessimistic at this point, but he has been kind of admitting that the traction that the problems are getting in the kind of wider society has surprised him, and he feels more hopeful about social interventions now than he has ever felt and political interventions. But yeah, like my, I mean, I'm a little bit more optimistic than Eliezer is because everybody is, but my sort of prior or default thinking is like very close to him because yeah, as I argued in my Oxford Union note last week, the big problem with current AI is that uh, frontier models are not built, they're grown in a way that we don't really control what's happening under the hood, which means we are basically summoning random minds and relying on the fact that they are not very competent, which might not last long. And then that evokes the sort of scenarios that Nick Bostrom was bringing up with superintelligence, that it could evolve beyond our control. And I think we all thought that was possible, but not as close as what's been happening now. To what extent do you feel that we have not got sufficient control over the AIs that have been released and are being developed right now? Yeah, so it's kind of hard to say to what degree the current crop of AIs, especially AIs that have been released by Meta, etc., and now it's being kind of used in North Korea, etc., like how much they pose kind of very serious catastrophic risks. I mean, we have lived with them for six months to a year now, and like nothing completely horrible has gone wrong. So kind of empirically, they're okay-ish, but like, I don't really know. Things might spin out of control like any day now. 
But like my main worry really is kind of the next generation where this is coming, because if you look at the differences, capability differences between GPT-2, 3, 4, this like really quick ramp up of capabilities. I mean, GPT-3 got my attention. And when I first saw the GPT-4 transcripts about a year ago, they were pretty shocking to me because GPT-3 managed to shock me in a way that it kind of, it was the first AI that got grammar correct. So it no longer made grammar mistakes, which was very surprising to me. But the text was really, wasn't super coherent. Whereas GPT-4, suddenly the text is coherent. It still hallucinates, but uh, coherence is the thing that really surprised me a year ago. Right. And it was doing things like passing Winograd schema tests, which were at least once thought to be a fairly reliable test for AGI. And obviously, we've moved the goalposts on that. But you were a signatory to two important open letters that happened in the last year, one calling for a six-month pause in the development of large language models, and the other stating that AI was posing an existential risk. What did you hope to achieve with that level of publicity? So, I mean, the first one, I don't think I had like any choice to, <laughs> to not sign because I was a co-author of the letter. So before the letter, in early March, I wrote this memo that I distributed to like AI safety community and adjacent people where I kind of made like two observations. One is that I see like kind of heightened anxiety among AI researchers themselves and AI developers. And I thought it was important to make this anxiety common knowledge because the rest of the world doesn't know yet that people close to AI are now so worried. And the second thing is that there are more and more calls for some kind of pause or moratorium. Perhaps we should kind of start promoting this idea. And the FLI letter was like an outgrowth of the second point. As a first point, there was like one group that started doing like a survey to make it kind of common knowledge. But I don't actually know what, how far that survey went. Did we get a pause? Was there a way of measuring it? I mean, all I can tell is that we don't have GPT-5, but I don't know if that was what was going to happen anyway. Yeah, so I don't think we got like counterfactual pause. I think if the letter hadn't happened, the AI development probably would be pretty much at the same point. We did get a pause because people just like were waiting for H100s to be delivered and wired up. But yeah, I don't think the letter had like any you know, material effect on the race, on the suicide race. But it certainly caused like a lot of discussion to happen. And I think the second letter that you mentioned, Kai's Center for AI Safety, where I actually just a couple of weeks ago I accepted a board position at they they're like a letter they're sort of like one one sentence extinction statement, I think was like downstream of the FLI letter. And I think it's like very, very useful to have because like the claims that the oh, yeah, extinction risk is something that only like a fringe group of people mm. to hung up on science fiction believe that is just like demonstrably not true now. Right. And a year ago, any talk about this existential risk was confined to either Eliezer or Roman Yampolsky or Stuart Russell or people who are generally regarded as fringe. And the explosion in development of large language models and those open letters propelled that into the more mainstream. And then a lot more people felt more comfortable saying that they were in alignment with that level of concern. And then, of course, the public narrative took off with full Terminator panic in many quarters. 
But now we're seeing things like the UK AI summit and supposedly something coming up from the White House. I don't know when. Do you think that that level of government interest, official interest, which might make more of a difference and a useful difference than talk shows talking about Terminators, was motivated and encouraged, propelled to some degree by the open letters? I think so, yeah. Like uh, even I think the European Commissioner Vestager, she like just explicitly said that that like the open letter, roughly quoting him, that the open letter kind of demonstrated that there is like much more wider concern about these things than the regulators had previously realized. So yeah, I think so. Going back to what we were talking about a little while ago about the level of risk posed by the current models, I think we're not anticipating that those are going to go rogue at any point, but what they did demonstrate is what we will do with that level of intelligence. And it was Roman Yampolsky who pointed this out to me, especially that if you think about the Asilomar principles and some of the things that they say in there about essentially don't hook these things up to the internet, don't hook anything with the capability you don't know up to recursive self-improvement. We had people doing that with these models within a week figuring out how to make uh, agents out of them, figuring out how to get them to autonomously improve code in running systems without a human intervention. And that presaged some obvious level of concern that we are likely to not be very responsible with whatever this turns into in the future, which might be even more capable and risky. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah. I do think we live in a very unstable times. A friend of mine in the AI safety community, he estimates that there are about perhaps like 20% of AI developers who actually either want to exterminate humanity or see it as an acceptable cost for bringing about the AI era. Certainly the inventor of uh, reinforcement learning, Rich Sutton, has been explicitly public about his position, uh, which is that, which also kind of demonstrates why kind of open source Kind of academic information sharing while really good in kind of in general is just really bad because you're empowering those 20% who want to exterminate humanity. I want to get at how your developer background intersects with this role now of taking this position on the world stage to act in a way that mitigates a risk to the whole human race. I mean, that's something that, I mean, for myself as a developer, I went through quite the transition in getting into public speaking because as someone with Asperger's and extreme introversion, that was painful, but it was motivated by having two daughters and realizing that they have a future that might not be as good as the life I've had. And for some reason, the thing that came to me to do something about that involved public speaking and other things that were not on the face of it compatible with being a software developer, but that was what it was. So I went through that transition. Did something similarly motivate you in terms of concern for the future? Because a lot of people can have the pessimistic predictions, but then go, well, but what can I do about it? Or what yeah. difference does it make? Or it's, I'm not going to be around. Yeah, I mean, I do have six children and one grandchild. So that is definitely like a motivating factor. In fact, I used to ask people when kind of the concerns about AI were kind of more fringe. And when I started explaining them to people, like quite often I asked, A, 
kind of program and B, to have children. Then I got like four different quadrants. I could kind of customize my you know, explanations about the uh, existential risks. So because parents who are also programmers, they're the easiest to communicate the problem to, whereas like non-parents who don't know what programs are, are the hardest. And so yeah, I do think that kind of concern about future generations can be very motivating. The friend of mine just recently pointed out that it became apparent recently. His son is about one year old and he had this thought that looking at him, he realizes that his son will never be as good as AI. So like he's clearly like inferior to AI in language abilities currently. And the way things are going, unless we get a pause, there will be like no abilities, including you know, physical abilities that he would catch up to AI. AI would just be ahead of him all the time. What you've said there about feeling inferior to AI is something that obviously deserves some more exploration, but I want to defer that until later when we might have a, an arc in the conversation that tends more towards uh, further future and optimism. You have funded two organizations, a Center for the Study of Existential Risk, Future of Life Institute, that do, well, what they say on the lid, but neither of those titles has AI in them. And so they do work on other things as well. Has your interest in those risks been confined to AI or is the reason for their breadth of application something that maybe it was easier to get something started like that than just nailing it down to AI? So, I mean, I'm a co-founder on both at both organizations. So there, even though my kind of focus has always been AI existential risk, the combination of people will have like a necessarily broader interest. So uh, at the Cambridge UK as Center for the Study of Exchange Risk, this organization has always been what I call sort of broad spectrum antibiotic, where we think uh, about many different risks. And going in, the idea was to be a little bit like a pioneer in academia to kind of uh, associate the brand of Cambridge with a concept of existential risk, which in 2012 where we started was like considered very fringe. So I think one thing that I've been saying is that CSER, Center for the Study of Existential Risk, kind of paid for it by having the existential risk in its name in Cambridge and everything else is a bonus. And at FLI, the focus basically mostly has been AI and nuclear, again, because of the interest of my co-founders in uh, avoiding nuclear catastrophes and now we are going to really doubling down on AI risk. Mm. So I think FLI is much more you know, closer <laughs> to my focus currently than CSER is. Do you have interest in the other existential risks like climate change? Yeah. And those, it's hard to put on a hat that mm -hmm. big, perhaps. The, yeah, the, the way I've been putting it is that like, I take all existential risk reduction that I can get. <laughs> so <laughs> like, if there's a way to you know, throw money at the problems, mm. I would be happy to. That said, yeah, my... Time budget, certainly, and also financial budget, but less certainly, is limited. So I need to focus on something, and my expertise certainly is in AI, AI risk. And also, I think that AI risk is now one or two orders of magnitude higher than all the other X risks combined. Okay. Now, how do we make that risk real to people? The thing I struggle with is that there's just no way of measuring it. It's not like an asteroid impact where you can say, look, this happens once every 50 million years, and and so you can actually get that down to an expected mortality rate. You can't do that because we have no 
idea currently of what that probability is or how to compute it. So I feel like I'm trying to argue with people about it, comparing it to a, the risk of invasions of leprechauns from another dimension. You know, some things that we can imagine as not being completely impossible are nevertheless so unlikely that there's simply no point in thinking about them, that being one of them. That's not the case with AI, but I can't even invoke the precautionary principle because I have no idea what the probability of that risk is. How do we make this real so that we can do something with it? Yeah, unfortunately, because we are talking about the unprecedented situation, it's hard to point to any kind of previous occurrences uh, of AI existential risk. So we kind of need to use some either metaphors or some analogies. And those, which metaphors or analogies to use kind of depends on your audience, right? So mm -hmm. myself, like one thing that I've done, for example, is just demonstrate tax risk in toy models. So if I talk to a programmer, I can just like show like that he had two agents. One of them has like a more deeper search tree. And look what happens when you're going to like start put them together in this toy universe. So you can kind of like get your intuition and go up from there. But I think that there's another interesting phenomenon is that in practice, sort of ordinary people, they are worried more and more polls show, especially in the West, in the US, show that people are very uneasy about the small group of people trying to build uh, super intelligent AIs. And I think their intuitions are just correct. So like we have this interesting situation where like where you have most ordinary people being worried and then like the top experts being worried. And then in the middle, there are sort of like uh, mostly academics who go like, well, actually, we don't even know what intelligence is. Just like wanted to sound smart. And that's it. Right. And that was intolerable up until a, a year ago in that you had anytime you try to have this conversation with people in the field, you could even point out what Stephen Hawking was saying, and they would say, he's a theoretical physicist, it's not his field, doesn't count. Mm -hmm. Now that <laughs> seems to have died down some. What I want to do on this podcast, and with all of my work, is help people understand what this means to them, what they can do about it. So when it comes to the ordinary people, you know, a parallel with climate change would be that they can get electric cars, they can put solar panels on, they, there is something they can do. It's not enough, but it is is something. It makes some difference. What can ordinary people do in this respect other than get better informed, which it, they can do by listening to this podcast? Yeah, getting better informed is, of course, useful. And the other thing is just kind of like indicate that you're concerned. And if you live in a democracy, you just indicate that you're going to vote for politicians who are basically responsive to the concerns. Yeah, and there are now people are starting to demonstrate. There have been you know, protests here and there about this. So I expect this to also increase. And obviously people, everybody can you know, participate in those things. There's even some sign of sort of protests emerging in the UK in advance of the summit there. Someone cited a van with an electronic billboard on it in Whitehall that was castigating AI companies for their mm. recklessness. So then what should governments do? I mean, we often assume that they have this omnipotence or that they have the power to do things, but we maybe don't realize that they could be as lost as the rest of us in figuring out what to do, especially when we're talking about something that's not like nuclear weapons. And we would compare the risk to nuclear weapons, but nuclear weapons have no positive use that is worth discussing. 
whereas AI will, given enough chance, cure cancer and has all of these commensurately positive outcomes for all the negative ones that we can imagine. So stopping it isn't something that we even want to do or should do unless we can prove, like Eliezer, that it's going to result in almost certainly extinction. So this puts governments between a rock and a hard place. What should they do? Yeah, so many things to say here in response. First of all, like I also think that even on the current trajectory, in expectation, the future is positive. In the sense that like if I look at risk of extinction, which is in my current estimation, like well over 90%. But if I just like multiply the small chance of surviving with the positive properties of that world, I still get like some bit that is an improvement over the status quo, perhaps like significant improvement. But it is indeed our in our power, at least in theory, to delay things so we could not just rush into this unknown future that's probably going to be lethal, but actually kind of like take some precautionary steps, which we're currently just not taking at all. So I do think that governments, certainly governments can make things illegal. And as I say that it's the top AI projects that are now getting to the territory of like $1 billion projects and like doing a $1 billion or perhaps soon $10 billion projects is just hard enough. It's just already super hard. If you make them illegal, they're pretty much impossible. Doing a $1 or $10 billion project that is illegal is, I would like to see examples like who has done that. So like, yeah, governments can make things illegal. That's one thing. Would Moore's Law make that billion-dollar project a million-dollar project in five years? Yeah, so there are two counters, counter-arguments to making things Illegal. One is indeed what you just said, that more slow keeps going. And the other is the but China <laughs> argument. So to the first is like, well, you can make hardware illegal. You can also say that, yeah, producing graphics cards above certain capability level is now illegal. And suddenly you have like much, much more runway as a civilization. And when it comes to China, yeah, we need, need like international coordination. That's why I'm really glad that the UK AI summit actually does include Chinese as uh, kind of full first-order citizens. This could be a misinformed view here, but does that level of hardware prohibition work when you can scale it over enough chips because parallel processing will get you anywhere? And then it's the question of, well, what is running in this data center? What if 90% of this data center is running a model just on lower capability chips? Do you get into a territory of having to put surveillance on what code is running in a data center? Yeah. I mean, regulating software is much, much more harder than hardware. But I can certainly imagine scenarios where you have you know, requirements to report the possession of hardware, hardware chips that can be used for AI training. And like, because they probably, from what I know, have like a unique identifiers and secure enclaves, etc. So you can kind of uh, have them do like kind of random checks on companies, whether they're still in possession of the hardware, et cetera. So you, you can have some kind of regulatory regime that keeps an eye on things. Of course, like there are arguments that this is like sounds increasingly more dystopian, but yeah, there are trade-offs. Like this is going to be a very harsh trade-off to navigate, like to what degree we sacrifice the mm -hmm. freedom against our hopes to survive. Well, that scenario is only dystopian if you're a large tech company because it's not 
getting at surveillance of individuals until you start worrying about people with M3 MacBooks. Yeah, but as I pointed out that like, if you like, let the Moore's law to continue, yeah. then like the surveillance has to be more and more pervasive. Right. And then there's the Bat-China argument. Yes. Again, because they may take that path. Now, although it doesn't get into the kind of prescriptions that you've been talking about on hardware, what do you think of the EU AI Act? Is it going the right way? Is it a useful stepping stone? I don't know much about the current state of things. What I do know, I was on this EU's high-level AI expert group. And because it happened before ChatGPT, the discussions were like very painful there when it comes to like looking at the future of general AI, or now as it now is known, generative AI. So like there was like an entire work group working on this so-called speculative scenario where AI doesn't stop where it is and but continues to improve. Granted, that was deemed too speculative. And the entire output of that work group was that was like a section in the report was uh, condensed into one paragraph. Then that one paragraph was condensed into one footnote. And then that footnote was reworded to sound dismissive. And I think a bit of that result is that the biggest weakness of the AI Act is, is it doesn't really know what to do with this general generative AIs. And a lot of the discussion has been focused on there from like industry. There's like a pressure to like just continue to not talk about anything general or generative, just like explicitly leave it out. And then uh, FLI, for example, Future of Life Institute has, we have their, our own lobbyists who are basically trying to make sure that this is will not be the case and it will, mm. it will cover generative AI, which probably is the most dangerous kind of AI there is. We had Risto Uk on the show talking about the EU AI Act, and that was before mm -hmm. generative AI, and then that was before the large language models came into prominence last November. And so it seemed that already those developments leapfrogged past what they had been anticipating or had anticipated in the Act at that time. Now, that's the end of the first half of the interview, which is another one of those I've split across two weeks to give you time to digest it. Honestly, if I was taking that principle seriously enough, I should probably split this interview across 10 weeks to give you time to digest all the things we're digging up, but two is what we've done. You heard mention there of Roman Yampolsky and Stuart Russell, both of whom have been on this podcast. Roman was on in episodes 16 and 17 and 160, 161. And Stuart was in episodes 86, 87. They've been sounding the alarm about the existential risk of AI for a long time, and during the period when such a stand was often ridiculed by AI researchers. Because of Roman and Stuart's standing as researchers, however, Stuart literally wrote the book on AI, or in this case co-wrote the standard AI textbook used in universities. However, they were stalwart standard bearers for that message that couldn't be ignored. I also mentioned Risto Uck, who is the lead European Union researcher at FLI, who came on episodes 139, 140 to help us understand the EU AI Act. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, a study at UC San Diego found that, listen carefully, ChatGPT outperforms physicians in high-quality, empathetic answers to patient questions. The paper was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association on Internal Medicine and asked the question, 
quote, can an artificial intelligence chatbot assistant provide responses to patient questions that are of comparable quality and empathy to those written by physicians, end quote. They compared physicians' and chatbots' responses to patients' questions asked publicly on a social media forum. The chatbot responses were preferred over physician responses and rated significantly higher for both quality and empathy. Jessica Kelly, a nurse practitioner and study co-author, said, quote, ChatGPT messages responded with nuanced and accurate information that often addressed more aspects of the patient's questions than physician responses. Co-author Aaron Goodman, MD, Associate Clinical Professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine, said, quote, I never imagined saying this. Uh, yep, me neither. Um, back to the quote. But ChatGPT is a prescription I'd like to give to my inbox. The tool will transform the way I support my patients, end quote. Just another way in which the ripples from the impact of large language models are spreading. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Jan Talon, when we'll talk about value alignment and how that does or doesn't intersect with large language models, FLI and their world-building project, and the instability of the world's future. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.